Have you ever felt like you believed in something so wholeheartedly only to later find out you were being lied to about it the entire time? Mm, well, the first thing that comes to mind is growing up believing in a certain individual in a red suit with a beard who also lives in a very cold climate. And then having that talk with your family about how he's not actually real. I know exactly who this certain individual you speak of is, sadly. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Now, what if I were to tell you that we were all being lied to about the benefits of a certain chemical we ingest every day? Wait a minute. You can't just leave me hanging like that. What are you talking about? What chemical? Okay, so we might not be being lied to about its benefits per se, but we certainly aren't being told the whole story about the consequences of its exposure. And I'm talking about fluoride. Yeah, the chemical that's in our toothpaste, and it's found in so much of our drinking water around the country. Wow, this is something a lot of people are exposed to every single day. I feel like we've been told it's very good for our teeth, but to be honest, I don't know that much more about it. I felt the same way. We spoke to Dr. Bruce Lanfear on his research studying the health effects of fluoride and other chemicals such as lead. Dr. Lanfear has also spent a lot of his career studying the effects of low exposure to chemicals such as these and advocating for the importance of prevention. My name is Hennessy Smedina. And my name is Elise Pierce. And this is what we're going to be talking about on today's episode of A Daily Dose. how fluoride can be harmful to us, I think some background information about it is important to tell you as well. Fluoride is used in factories, mills, to produce high-octane gasoline, and more. The idea of water fluoridation, specifically, was introduced in order to lower the number of cases of people with tooth decay in the country. In 1945, the first community in the United States had fluoride added to its tap water. Since then, there has been a decline seen in the number of tooth decay cases, including a decrease in the number of childhood dental cavities. Okay, but that's a good thing, right? Doesn't that mean that the fluoride is helpful? See, that's what you would assume, but the decline in tooth decay was seen globally, including in areas where water fluoridation was not present. So can we really single-handedly attribute the decline of tooth decay to fluoridation? Mm, That's a good point. There are benefits seen to topical fluoridation for sure. That's what it means to put fluoride directly on the surface of the tooth. We typically apply fluoride to our teeth every day with our toothpaste. But we don't swallow toothpaste, so it would only be logical to assume that most of our exposure to fluoride comes from our drinking water. And get this! Most, if not all, of the fluoride that's in our community's tap water is industrial waste. What do you mean, industrial waste? Yes. Fluoride is put into our drinking water in the form of what's called fluorosilic acid, or FSA. And that's a byproduct from the phosphate industry in Florida. The phosphate industry is just the industry of the mining of phosphate rock. I can't believe information like that isn't common knowledge or something. Right. I think it's important to point out that not every person drinks the same amount of water each day, so not everyone is ingesting the same amount of fluoride either. And we do have levels of fluoride in our tap water that are deemed safe, according to the government. But are these levels truly safe for us? 
Dr. Lanford conducted a study in Canada looking at the association between maternal fluoride exposure and the IQ of their children at the ages of three or four. Here's what he had to say about the results of this study. Now we had, and part of the reason we chose the MIREX study was because about 30 to 40% of uh, homes in Canada um, have tap water that's fluoridated. But fluoride in water is not the only source. Drinking black tea, for example, uh, some uh, oral hygiene products like toothpaste. A toothpaste actually gives you quite a small amount, unless you tend to swallow it, which most of us don't. Uh, but what we did is we started out just by looking at the total exposure uh, to fluoride. And we didn't try to separate out water fluoride. But what we did find is that within the range of the levels of fluoride in drinking water that are considered optimal, uh, we did see decrements in intellectual ability. And that's consistent with another study that was conducted in Mexico where they fluoridate salt instead of water. That's so interesting because these children had been exposed to fluoride from their mothers during prenatal development. As Dr. Lanfear said, these mothers had also been ingesting fluoride levels that were deemed optimal, which I think is government speak for safe exposure levels. And yet... I see. You're beginning to understand that it may not just be high exposures to certain chemicals that may lead to various health implications. It's the low concentrations in drinking water that were associated with effects on IQ. Dr. Lanford also listed some of the other possible health effects of fluoride exposure. There's some evidence linking fluoride exposure to, well, certainly fluorosis, modeling of the teeth, at high levels, you can get skeletal fluorosis, and we see this even today in communities around the world that have extraordinarily high levels of natural fluoride in their drinking water, uh, where it damages the bones. Um, there's evidence that fluoride might be associated with thyroid disruption. Uh, fluoride used to be used in, uh, as a treatment for hyperthyroidism. Uh, and we're doing some research now that's looking at whether fluoride um, is associated with an increase in hypothyroidism in pregnant women. Uh, and then finally, there's the, the IQ deficits uh, associated with fluoride. So more often than not, the evidence seems to point to if you find a chemical is toxic, it'll be uh, toxic to several different organs, several different uh, uh associated with several different endpoints, not just one. Well, that's quite the list. So it's understood now that fluoride is an endocrine disruptor, especially seeing how it's associated with health effects on the thyroid gland. Usually when I think of exposure to chemicals, I think that the more you're exposed, the worse it is for you. With fluoride, though, even small amounts seem to be associated with certain health effects. I'm beginning to think that this must be the case for other chemicals in our environment as well. It's perfect that you bring this up because it just so happens that Dr. Lanfer has done a lot of research looking into how low dose level exposure can also be extremely harmful as well. Next, we will be discussing the question of whether or not there are actually any threshold levels that can be considered safe when it comes to chemical exposure. So you may be wondering why it is a widely held belief that there are safe levels of exposure to certain chemicals in our environment. For carcinogens in the environment, those are chemicals that can cause cancer, 
there is what is called a linear no-threshold model exposure response that has been assumed. In contrast, for non-carcinogens, it has been assumed that there are threshold or levels that are deemed safe for these chemicals. Okay, so I'm going to need to break that down a bit more. If I'm remembering right, the linear no-threshold model you mentioned basically says that the higher the exposure to the carcinogen, the higher the risk for cancer, and that for these chemicals that have been proven to cause cancer, there is no such level of exposure that is considered safe. However, for chemicals that have not been associated with cancer specifically, there are levels of exposure that are assumed to be safe? That's exactly right. For carcinogens, scientists assume that even a minuscule amount could potentially be harmful. If you think about how these chemicals cause harm, this makes sense. Even just one mutation in DNA could be harmful, so low doses that cause even just a few mutations could be dangerous. In these cases, there is no threshold, or no dose at which exposures are considered safe. But for other chemicals that don't interact with DNA, a threshold was assumed to exist. These were the original assumptions made by the EPA and other regulatory agencies when it came to chemical exposure in the environment. Dr. Lanfrey describes some of the issues with these assumptions. So the, the linear no-threshold model for carcinogens uh, made this assumption you know, five or six years ago, long before we had good evidence about whether there were thresholds uh, for carcinogens or the shape of that exposure response curve. So um, what we now know is if you look at the, the evidence for some of the most well-studied toxic chemicals, some are carcinogens, some are non-carcinogens, uh, is that there is no threshold for some of the most well-studied uh, and widely disseminated toxic chemicals, including things like benzene um, and asbestos, which causes mesothelioma and lung cancer. So for carcinogens, not only is there no threshold, but in those two cases, we see this greater than linear increase in the risk. So for the carcinogens, we're not necessarily protecting the population. And then for the non-carcinogens, things like airborne pollutants, lead, um, tobacco smoke, we've made assumptions that those that there are safe levels or thresholds. So even less protective than a linear no-threshold model. As Dr. Lanfear alluded to, there is much more evidence today that suggests that low-level exposure to chemicals is associated with various health effects, including some serious diseases. With new discoveries such as these, I think it would only be logical for regulatory agencies like the EPA to update their policies according to this modern science. I think so too. And yet, it seems like it takes so much to get any sort of change in policy, despite the mounting evidence that seems to pile up. Let's take lead, for example, one of the chemicals that Dr. Lanfear has studied as well. When we spoke with him, he described a sort of timeline for change in lead regulation for children. The first study I did as a, as a postdoc in Rochester, New York, was to identify what levels of lead in house dust were dangerous. and at the time, this was 1996, we said, well, it should be less than five or 10 micrograms of lead per square foot of dust, right? And you can measure that by going in and putting down a 12 square inch template and measuring the amount of lead with a baby wipe. It's very simple. Uh, you send it off to a lab, you get a result back. And we said it, it should be less than five or 10 micrograms per square foot to protect children from lead poisoning. 
And that study was, was based on a congressional mandate. It was mandated to promulgate, to, to set a, a standard for lead and house dust that would protect kids. So we said it should be five or 10 and 96. That's when blooded levels above 10 were considered lead poisoning. In 2001, the EPA set it at 40 microgram per square foot. At 40 microgram per square foot, one in 10, excuse me, one in five kids would be lead poisoned. We tried to work with them. We continued to do research over the next several years. They didn't revise it. They didn't revisit it. Um, by 2009, some advocacy groups petitioned the EPA to revisit it and potentially lower it to better protect kids. Uh, they agreed. In 2012, the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, declared there's no safe level. The EPA still had not revised the dust lead standard. By 2016, the EPA had still not revised the dust lead standard. Earth Justice took them to court. The federal court ordered them to come out with a protective standard by 2000, I think it must have been 2017 or 2018. They promulgated a new standard, but it was inadequate. It didn't protect children based upon the best science. Earth Justice took them back to court. They just won again. And now EPA has to move forward, set standards that are protective based on the science without consideration for the cost. The fact that he began to do research on lead in 1996 and has only recently seen any sort of concrete change from the EPA is really shocking and frustrating. I feel like everyone knows now that lead is not good for you, but the policy should really reflect that more. I completely agree. It's frustrating for us as citizens who are supposed to trust that these agencies will always prioritize our health and keep us informed. And it must also be frustrating for scientists and researchers like Dr. Lanfear, who spend years researching this important information, only to see it sort of be ignored or pushed to the back burner in a way. Dr. Lanfear also shared some of his insight on low-level exposures to lead, and that's what we'll be discussing next. I remember while I was in high school, there was an incident where testing revealed that there were elevated levels of lead in our drinking water, and the water fountain in our school hallways got shut off. I didn't pay that much attention to it when it happened, but after learning more about what lead exposure can do to your body, I now realize how dangerous that was for us. For a long time, the evidence was strongest that children were more vulnerable to lead, particularly for developmental impacts, the impacts on brain development. And we saw that especially with IQ deficits or deficits in intellectual ability. And that's where we first saw uh, evidence of this decelerating dose response. Even at the lowest measurable levels, we saw decrements in IQ. But even more than that, for a given increase in exposure, we saw greater decrements at lower levels than we saw at more moderate at high levels. And that really was counterintuitive. So, you know, we took from that, I think most of us took from that, and most people probably still think this, that children are more vulnerable. That's likely to be true for the impact on brain development, particularly during early childhood when the brain is rapidly growing. But now we also know that adults are at risk for exceedingly low levels of exposure to lead 
for other kinds of outcomes like hypertension and death from coronary heart disease. That's not a condition that children experience. And so I think a better way to think about it now is that both children and adults are uniquely and exquisitely sensitive to the toxic effects of lead, but the manifestations are different. Wow. I feel like when I hear about lead exposure, most of the conversation goes back to the health implications for children. I didn't know adults are vulnerable to low levels of exposure as well. Yeah, this has definitely made me rethink a lot of what I know about lead exposure, because not only am I thinking about how children are being exposed, but now I'm also thinking about the several ways in which adults like us are exposed as well. Dr. Lanfrey also described to us where the exposure to these chemicals can come from, and spoiler warning, it's in a lot of places. When I first got started uh, studying how to prevent lead poisoning, and that was really my focus, was to, to focus on prevention. It was predominantly lead paint. Leaded gasoline had been uh, phased out, it was just being finally phased out, uh, and although there is still old leaded gasoline that's still, let's say, can increase after rainstorms, windstorms from, you know, past exposures. For children, for young children, it's predominantly lead in and around their homes. Old lead-based paint, lead-contaminated soil, lead in water. But there's other important sources that we keep having to deal with. For example, aviation gas. Uh, some uh, small aircraft um, continue to use leaded gasoline. And so we can see higher children who live around these small general or regional airports have higher blood lead levels, especially if they live very close to the airports. And then their blood lead levels tend to fall off as you move further away. Um, there are still uh, problems with lead in food. You know, there was recently a big expose about lead in baby food. And make you know the, the baby food companies haven't been doing enough to make sure that their products are free of lead. So lead is lead is just ubiquitous, right? We're still dealing with this past century, and even today, lead production is higher than it has been any time in history because lead is used in car batteries, and the number of cars uh, uh, being produced and and used around the world has been growing as countries industrialize. Dr. Lanvier talked about how some of the sources for lead exposure include old couches, older buildings, even proximity to airplanes. And that just made me think, well, those sources for these toxic chemicals tend to be concentrated within poorer communities, right? I'm not saying that only people in lower income communities are affected by these exposures, because that's not true but we can't deny the fact that there are certainly racial and socioeconomic disparities when it comes to chemical exposure. Yeah, there definitely are. It's not fair to these people because it's not like they can just move away from their homes and many people can't afford to replace their furniture, so we can't just recommend they throw away their old couches either. Dr. Lanfair touched upon these disparities and described how society has failed to help these communities. Children who typically live in poorer neighborhoods uh, oftentimes have much higher concentration of various exposures to these toxic chemicals. That is, these toxic chemicals tend to concentrate in impoverished neighborhoods. So for example, um, in a neighborhood in Cincinnati where I did much of my work, um, 
children live near the highways, so they're exposed to traffic pollution. And traffic pollution, of course, is hundreds of different chemicals. It's not really just one. They tended to live in older homes that were poorly maintained. Lead exposure was a big problem. These older homes might have more problems with cockroaches, tend to be exposed to more pesticides. They may live in communities with higher rates of smoking, and so secondhand smoke was a problem. Or to use old furniture where the flame retardants like PBDEs leach out. So to the extent that some studies have attempted to look at this kind of a cocktail of exposures, we typically see that um, poorer children, children of color, tend to have higher concentrations of these chemicals, a greater body burden of these chemicals. And this, I think, provides us some insight into, for example, why children from poor communities do more poorly in school. Uh, I don't think it's biologic. I don't think it's genetic. I don't think it's just as simple as teachers in poor communities aren't good teachers. But that's what we've tended to, 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 to blame um, these uh, differences on. Maybe it's because their parents aren't as smart. Maybe it's because their parents don't parent as well. Maybe it's because they don't have books or they have bad teachers. We keep dismissing these other, uh, this other evidence that's staring us in the face because it's inconvenient. It would mean that we have to completely upend the economy, our reliance on, uh, on these chemicals, and for industries, their profitability. He brought up such a good point at the end where he said that it would be an inconvenience to these industries to address these issues. Like an inconvenience should ever outweigh the harm to communities and individuals. It just connects back to our discussion on how it seems to take agencies a while to update their regulations as well. While it takes these agencies so long to change their policies and industries just continue to put hazardous chemicals in our environment, we are all being put at risk. And as we just addressed, some people are at even higher risk than others. It's frustrating to say the least, and it's unfair that we should be expected to wait for these changes to be made when we know what's happening today will be affecting our future children, grandchildren, and even more of our future generations. We can't keep assuming that low-level chemical exposure is safe. We've just learned about how fluoride and lead exposure at low levels are associated with numerous health conditions. These chemicals and many more in our environment are not only causing disruption to our endocrine systems either. With Dr. Lanford today, we've discussed the many ways in which so many of our bodily functions are affected as well. Exactly. And the exposure to these chemicals is a pressing global issue today. So in 2017, we came out with an estimate that about 16% of all deaths were due to pollutants and toxic chemicals. Now, that was before our 2018 paper that showed that we dramatically underestimated the impact of lead on coronary heart disease. In that paper, we estimated that lead was the leading risk factor for death from coronary heart disease. And it's not a, even on anybody's list. So if we accounted for, uh, for that new evidence, um, it's likely that these pollutants, at a minimum, at a minimum, and especially 
in low to middle income countries, industrializing countries, account for at least one out of five deaths worldwide. That's greater than the number of deaths from HIV, TB, and malaria combined. And yet the amount of resources that go to protect people from these toxic chemicals and pollutants is just a fraction of that. So we've got a long way to catch up. And I think for me, the main thing that um, the key concept for me today that is both most troubling and most hopeful is that most of the things that kill us today, most of the things that lead to disease and disability are man-made. And that's troubling, of course, because we're doing it to ourselves. We're fouling our own nest. The hopeful part is that if most of the things that kill us today are man-made, that means we can prevent them. We can stop doing the things that are killing us. I agree with Dr. Lanfer in that there does seem to be a beacon of hope in what may seem like our impending doom. If what is killing us today was made by us, then surely there must be a way to take this problem and rein it in. The solutions need to come from us. Yeah, and if there's anything I've taken from this conversation today, it's that we also must hold these industries accountable for the dangers they are exposing us to and press for change from our regulatory agencies as well. I think it's also important to keep the general public, people like you, me, our families, informed of scientific developments and new research too. Right, because if we're kept in the dark about what's going on, then how are we supposed to change anything in the first place? like to thank Dr. Bruce Lanfear, Professor of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, for his special contributions to this episode. A Daily Dose is a production of the SCOPE Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. SCOPE is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Mayra Lima, Hennessy's Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah Power, and Jody Zismore.